Hello, friends, and welcome to Sterile Field Guide, a podcast dedicated to medical student general surgical education. I'm Alex, and I'll be your guide. Hello, friends. Welcome back to Sterile Field Guide. In this episode, we're going to start talking about content that you might see on your shelf exam or things that might be applicable to you in your clerkships. When this episode comes out, I'll actually be starting my trauma acting internship or my sub internship as some places call it. So we're going to start a string of mini series. We're going to start with trauma and acute care surgery and work our way through general surgery topics. It's my dream to give you some applicable knowledge for your experience in the hospital in a bite-sized form while reviewing some shelf concepts here and there. We'll try to keep it short and sweet just like the last few episodes. And so we are going to go through the ABCDEs of trauma today, but this is going to be a part one because there's plenty to cover. And again, I want to keep these palatable for you because I know you need breaks from medicine topics. So we are going to talk about what's called the primary survey in trauma. So if there is a trauma activation, if somebody's in a car accident and they meet criteria for an activation, there is a sequence of events that they will likely encounter no matter what hospital they go to. And this sequence of events is set by something called ATLS or Advanced Trauma Life Support. This is sort of a worldwide, maybe international way to approach trauma activations. And we are going to talk about the primary survey, which happens in every single activation or should if they're following this method. Before we dive in, briefly just talking about what an activation is. If you are, because not everyone who's in a car accident is going to be transferred to a trauma center. So some things that will buy you a ticket to a trauma center would be things like vital sign instability. So for example, a systolic blood pressure less than 90, respiratory rate gray greater than 29 or less than 10 breaths per minute, or the need for ventilatory support. If your mental status is waxing and waning, or if you have a GCS or Glasgow Coma Scale less than 13, we'll go over the Glasgow Coma Scale in the next episode. But if your mental status is altered, you're probably going to get activated to a trauma center. The mechanism can play a big role on where you get transferred. So for example, penetrating injuries anywhere proximal to the elbow and knee. So anything distal to the elbow and knee, you might not get activated to a level one trauma center or a trauma center at all, but any penetrating injury proximal to that sort of buys you a ticket. Chest wall instability, like flail chest, we'll speak about that. Crushed, mangled, pulseless extremities, a fall from greater than 20 feet in adults and greater than 10 feet in children, and then things about the accident, if it's like a car accident, so intrusion, so the bending of the actual structure of the vehicle greater than 12 inches, ejection from the vehicle, death in the vehicle, so if the passenger or the driver died and the the patient is the other person who was in the car, they'll get activated. Or if the mechanism is just very high speed. So if we know they were going 75 miles an hour when this happened, but they look really good, they probably will still go to a level one or two trauma center because sometimes people can look really good and then decompensate pretty quickly. This also applies to motorcycle crashes greater than 20 miles per hour. That's a lot of information about the mechanism and you definitely don't need to memorize that, but just in case you are at a trauma center, 
and you're wondering like why some people come here and why some people don't, why am I seeing these types of injuries more frequently? Probably because they're either mandated to come to you or you're not at the appropriate quote unquote level of center. So if you don't have a level one center at your institution, you won't be seeing some of these more intense cases. And other things that can impact where you get where you get transferred would be demographic information. So older folks, children, pregnant women, patients who use anticoagulants, and then also if the first responders have a bad feeling about the patient, regardless of if they meet these criteria or not, there is a point in the algorithm that sort of defers to the first responder. So if they feel like you need to go to a higher level of care, that's what they're gonna do. So when you arrive in the hospital, as a trauma patient, the first thing that's going to happen is what's called the primary survey, and that makes sense because it is primary. And the order of operations of this happens the same way every single time, which is good because this is a pretty tense time. And the the algorithm for this is A, B, C, D, and E. So everybody knows their ABCs, and this is actually in order of priority. So what's going to kill you first? What do we need to focus on first going from A to E? It's prioritized for you. You shouldn't be jumping around and skipping steps. Always A, B, C, D, E in that order. You get it. So the A stands for airway. And so going through, just sort of giving you the layout of what everything stands for, and then we'll talk about individual components. A stands for airway. B stands for breathing and ventilation. C stands for circulation. D stands for disability. And E stands for exposure. So starting with airway, what we want to do is make sure that the patient has a patent airway. So they have the ability to move air into their lungs. The way that you'll typically do this is asking the patient to say their name or to say something. If they're able to vocalize, they probably have a clear airway, at least in the time being. This is not to say that they won't decompensate, but if a patient is able to say anything to you in a clear way, you can sort of assume that they have a clear airway. Again, you should be reassessing this constantly and making sure that you're not missing something as you're working down the list, but that's a good way to test. If that's not happening, some signs that the airway's not secure would be patient can't talk to you, they're not able to follow commands, they have altered mental status, they're sonorous, so they're like snoring, they have damage to the neck or the mouth. Another sound they could be make is like gurgling, that's not, that's also not good. And then patients who have inhalation injuries, so if somebody has a burn and they have a suspected inhalation injury, even if they have a patent airway now, you should expect that they will not have a patent airway because inhalation injuries can cause a ton, a ton, a ton of swelling in the trachea and the larynx and all that soft tissue. And so it's it can get pretty dicey to intubate them later. And so if you know that someone has an, an inhalation injury, they will likely be getting intubated before they look bad. If you lose the airway and you have to do a surgical airway later, that is too much risk to the patient when you could have done something prophylactic. In general, the recommendation is that if the GCS or the Glasgow Coma Scale is less than eight, you should intubate. So GCS less than eight intubate is sort of the adage. However, this is not applicable to everybody. So if somebody is like drunk in the ED, they could have a GCS less than eight. So just be mindful, not just blindly applying the GCS to people and intubating people who de definitely don't need to be intubated. However, in a trauma situation, if somebody has a GCS less than eight, they probably are going to get intubated because it's hard to tell what is from injury and what is from intoxication in these settings. And so that's sort of what the approach will be in that situation. 
in other scenarios, you might approach it differently. So as far as like what kind of airway you are going to try to achieve, so if the patient does not have a secure airway, you are going to try to secure it for them. And so what you are going to do is try to place a quote unquote definitive airway. And so a definitive airway is defined as an airway that it's a cuffed tube. So the tube has a little balloon on it to keep it in place, to keep that air going where it needs to, that's below the cords and it is providing oxygen to that patient. So it should be secured, it should be cuffed and it should be providing some sort of ventilation and oxygenation to the patient. That is a definitive airway. When you are intubating a patient or attempting intubation of a patient, especially a trauma patient, you should always, always, always maintain C-spine precautions or cervical spine precautions. It is hard to tell, especially in the primary survey, especially if someone has a broken leg, if they also have a broken neck. And the last thing you wanna do is manipulate their neck and cause them to have a high cervical spine injury, paralysis, those sorts of things. So we're going to minimize mobility of the neck during this time most patients will get a collar that can be cleared after they have appropriate imaging or we know their story a little bit better but you will maintain c-spine precautions when intubating some options for definitive airways are going to be endotracheal tubes or et tubes you can also do a nasotracheal tube whoa, that's hard to say, a nasotracheal tube or a cricothyrotomy, which is a surgical airway. Just a point to make, there should be no nasogastric or nasal intubations in patients who have suspected facial fractures because that tube could end up going through the cribriform plate. And there, if you remember, is a really important structure behind the cribriform plate, which is the brain. Please don't intubate the brain. If you suspect that this patient could have facial fractures, please don't put things in their nose. Your patient will thank you. If you have intubated the patient, how do you tell that your tube is in the right place? This is a question that you will probably get asked as a medical student, at least on an anesthesia rotation, if not on your surgical rotation. How do you tell your tube is in the right place? There's a couple of things that you'll want to see. The first being bilateral breath sounds. That's something that you'll hear. You can also see that their chest is rising. So evidence that their lungs are moving. Second thing is end tidal CO2. So if they are attached to a monitor and and you can measure the CO2 coming back through the tube, that is a good sign that you're in the right spot. And then color change on capnography, if you're using a capnographer, which is that little piece of paper on the tube that changes color when they breathe back at you, is sort of indicative that they are in the correct spot. You can also tell that you're in the wrong spot. If you can hear air bubbles over the stomach, if their oxygen saturations aren't coming up, if you don't see bilateral breath sounds, etc., or hear bilateral breath sounds, that is a sign that you might be in the esophagus. You may have goosed them. So if you can't place a definitive airway, there is a difficult airway algorithm, which we will review in an anesthesia episode because that could be its own topic. But essentially, if you are unsuccessful at your intubation, bag mask ventilation isn't working, superglottic airway isn't working, you've tried the direct laryngoscopy with the camera, you might have to do a surgical airway. And we mentioned already that this is called a cricothyrotomy. And so if you are able to right now, like if you're driving with one hand, maybe leave one hand on the wheel. But if you feel your neck, the most prominent cartilage is typically your thyroid cartilage. And the one right below that is called your cricoid cartilage. The membrane that connects these is aptly named the cricothyroid membrane. To do a cricothyrotomy, you will make a hole 
through that membrane. So those are sort of your landmarks. When you are approaching this, you'll make a vertical incision on the midline of the neck, and then you'll make your horizontal incision on the membrane between the two cartilage. You can stick your pinky or your tube in here, bluntly dissect, open that hole up so that it's you can pass a tube through it. That is gonna be below the cords, and so that's gonna be a definitive airway. People often will write main stem, and if you're not familiar with that, what that means, you have your left bronchus and your right bronchus, your left and right main bronchi. If you pass a tube too far, it's very likely to go into the right main stem, and so that is called a right main stem intubation, that you're just going to be putting air into one lung, and your tidal volumes need to be a lot lower if you're doing that, and so you're at risk of barotrauma and those sorts of things. Because you're so much closer at this area than you are coming from the mouth, you're pretty likely to accidentally write main stem, and that's totally fine. You'll just have to back it out. But just beware that you'll probably main stem somebody <laughs> when you're doing this. And then just an aside, while I, when I was learning this from trauma faculty here, I was told to just keep in mind that these procedures can be messy um, and you will likely need suction, lap pads, whatever you can find in the moment. Um, and it's not going to be just like straightforward, oh, I can see everything that's going on. And just don't underestimate the difficulty of these procedures. I know movies sometimes make this seem like it's super easy to do with a pen in a restaurant and I think it's like really difficult to do in a hospital that has a lot of supplies. So just keep that in mind when you're thinking about a surgical airway. So that's a pretty extensive review of airway. Obviously there's so many other things that could be going on, but we are gonna move on to breathing and ventilation for the sake of time. So breathing and ventilation is different from airway. So airway, I like to think about it as mechanical, so to speak. So airway is do you have access to the lungs somehow? Yes. Awesome. Breathing is, are you getting airflow? Is there oxygen? Is there gas exchange effectively? Are you breathing off your CO2? Or are your lungs compressed? Are they bruised? Like what's going on? Do you have flail chest? Those sorts of things. That is your breathing and ventilation section. So things that can impede breathing, I like to think about them in a couple different buckets. The first one would be extra stuff in your thorax. So you can think about it. If your lungs need to expand to bring oxygen in, to participate in oxygen and gas exchange, if there's something compressing a lung, pushing on a lung, such as air or blood, that is going to make it a lot harder for you to be breathing correctly. And so those things, if you've not heard of them, extra air in your chest is called a pneumothorax. Extra blood is called a hemothorax. You can also have both. So air and blood is a hemopneumothorax. And both of these things, or all three, I reckon, can cause what's called tension pneumothorax. Tension pneumothorax, you can see signs of um, in your physical exam. So if the trachea is deviated um, away from the midline, you can see on chest x-ray, you can also see that. But these patients will have a lot of vital sign instability and the the question you may get asked is why does tension pneumothorax cause hemodynamic collapse and the answer is i'll let you think about it for a second the compression of like adding pressure to the chest can crush the vena cava and sort of like decrease 
or completely cut off the blood flow to the heart. So there's no blood returning to the heart because you have the collapse of the venous structures, which are very low pressure. And so you don't have blood going to your heart. So you don't have blood being pumped through your aorta to the rest of your body. You have no circulation. So this can become, it is an emergency. This can become really dangerous really quickly. And so the answer to this, if you have what's called attention pneumothorax or attention hemothorax, you need to get rid of this extra pressure that's in your chest by letting the air or the blood out. And so typically we're going to see this like tension pneumothorax is going to be way more common. So a tension pneumothorax, people typically think of the treatment for this as needle decompression. Um, You can also do what's called a finger thoracostomy and we'll talk about those right now. So a needle decompression, this is the classic teaching. This is where you're going to pierce the chest with the needle and that's going to allow air to escape and relieve the pressure and allow blood flow to return to the heart. The usual teaching for this is going to be mid-clavicular line, second rib rib space. You'll put your needle here, let the air out. This sometimes can be limited by body habitus. So if people have really thick chests um, or a lot of subcutaneous tissue, it can be difficult to stick a needle in here and get deep enough that you are going to let any air out. And so you can also do a needle decompression in the mid-axillary line, same place you would do a chest tube. So mid-axillary line, fifth intercostal space, um, which is about the nipple line or inframammary fold in blue out breasts. Question for you is where do you want to enter the chest above or below the rib? And if you think about this, you want to enter above the rib because the neurovascular bundle runs in the groove that's on the inferior border of the rib. So you always want to enter with your needle or your chest tube or your finger or whatever you're going to do in this case above the rib, okay? Because you don't want to be hitting the neurovascular bundle. You can have a ton of bleeding from intercostal vessels. So you you just don't want to mess with that. Top of the rib. That's safe. Um, So you can do a needle decompression there. You can also do a finger thoracostomy. So a finger thoracostomy is basically a chest tube without the chest tube. And so you go through the motions of doing the chest tube. You make your incision with a scalpel. You bluntly dissect, usually with your finger, until you enter the pleural cavity. And then at this point, you can remove your finger and sometimes a gush of air will come out. Sometimes blood will come out at that time as well. This is done during the primary survey if there's concern for tension pneumothorax because that is uh, something that's impeding breathing. And so if you are performing if you're like, oh, well, why don't we just put a chest tube in there? A chest tube is kind of like a formal procedure. You need to suture it in. You have to snake it in. Sometimes you can get caught on things. There's simply no time for that. So a finger thoracostomy is like the same procedure, but you're not going to formalize. They call it formalizing. You're not going to formalize your chest tube at this time, but you're going to relieve that tension and then move on to your circulation, which we will talk about in the next episode. But while we have a little bit of time, speaking very briefly on flail chest. So when thinking about flail chest, the definition of flail chest is at least three ribs broken in two or more places. And so this creates a free floating plate of ribs that moves paradoxically with our movement. Flail chest can cause respiratory compromise and in an emergent setting, especially when you're dealing with a lot of traumatic injuries, this can wear patients out very quickly and it can become very tenuous for them to be able to breathe and maintain their vital signs. 
that was a crash course on airway, breathing, and ventilation. So I hope that you found this interesting and helpful. Just remember that when you're going through your primary survey, which is airway, breathing, circulation, disability, and exposure, that you should go in that order every single time. Another tip for you is that if something becomes unstable in something that you've already evaluated, so let's say, okay, we did airway, patient's talking, that's totally fine. Awesome. Moving on to breathing. All right, we're going to do this needle decompression. Oh, wait, like their oxygen saturation is dropping. At that time, you go back to airway. You start all over and then you run your list again. If you get all the way down to disability and you're doing your GCS exam and you're like, oh my gosh, I think they're breathing funnier. Oh, I'm, I'm noticing flail chest at this time. You're going to go back. You're going to go back to airway breathing circulation and sort of like go through that list again. That's it for today's podcast. You can support this podcast and receive exclusive educational content on Patreon and find us on Instagram at Sterile Field Guide. Questions and requests can be submitted to our Gmail at sterilefieldguide at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And until next time, may your retraction be superb and your suture tails be the perfect length.